0: Now, shortly after we were married, um, you know, Gracie and the, and the girls are at camp today, so I feel kind of like I'm going solo, and I'm kind of sad. Caleb and I have been batching it this weekend since Saturday morning. Um, after we were married, just a little while, we had been driving this green station wagon, Ford Escort. Anybody remember those Ford Escort wagons? <laughs> Ugly as sin, you know, but they got the job done. So we're driving around this Ford Escort wagon, and I made a series of four choices that led to an unavoidable outcome. So the, the first mistake was the engine was running hot in this little Ford Escort wagon, and uh, so I went and got some fluids, uh, some, fluid, some uh, coolant pour into it. So I got a big bottle of coolant, and I poured in, anybody want to guess how much? The entire bottle of coolant. I didn't have a lot of experience with that kind of maintenance, so I poured in the entire bottle, so that was mistake number one. Mistake number two, um, was that I noticed that there was some fluid out underneath the car. Some, some green stuff, so I figured it was coolant. But, you know, I thought I poured in so much coolant that I can afford to lose a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually underestimated the amount of fluid that had been lost. It, because what had happened was is the radiator had leaked the entire amount of coolant. That was mistake number two. Mistake number three was when we were on the highway, and this was... This is around uh, 85, around, around Suwane, you know, 317. And uh, the car started to sputter. And I figured, oh, it's fine. You know, I've put in plenty of coolant. Um, we, we can probably just go a little longer. Maybe it'll work the kinks out. Well, that was mistake number three. And uh, the car did not just sputter. It eventually stopped. And uh, the result was that we needed a new engine. So, yeah, I know. It's amazing. I was, I was a real dummy when it came to cars. It's like I was a millennial before it was popular. Um, Now, we all know what it's like to sew a series of bad decisions together into an outcome that we can't fix, right? I mean, that was unfixable. I had to have my guy, my friend who owns a junkyard, to get me a new motor, which actually leaked oil. So it wasn't a really good trade. Um, But we know what that's like. And when we're little, you know, you got little guys, it's kind of entertaining when they make a big mess or when they do something that can't be fixed. It's kind of cute. Uh, when they become a little bit older, when they're younger, maybe 12 or older, it's you can, you can be, it's not so cute, but you can understand. It's like, I can understand why you did that. You know, when I was your age, that's when we tell those stories, right? When I was your age, I did something even dumber, right? And then the kids feel comforted and encouraged. But when we get older, the effects of our poor choices, they can last a long time. And this is especially true when it comes to how we control our bodies, Today we're going to talk about a time in the life of David where he wove an intricate web of sin and deceit that ultimately he could not escape. And and this is a sad story, but I want you to remember two important lessons today. Number one, first and most important, this story will show you that you can't run beyond the reach of God. David found it out. We find it. You can't run beyond the reach of God. In other words, God loves you too much to let you get away with it. Right? Don't, don't we know that as parents? We love our children. And so when it comes time to give the consequences, we discipline them. Because we love them too much. We know what's going to happen down the road if we don't address it. So God loves you too much to let you get away with it. Secondly, if you turn back to God. If you, and we've seen this in every story that we've had in this series. When you turn back to God, there's always a way back. When you turn back, there's always way back. Well, the first point this morning is already on the screen. Poor choices open the door. When studying history, which I love history, I'm reading a book right now about World War II, prior to inevitable conflict, you can usually begin to see the handwriting on the wall. You see what's going to happen next. For instance, Sir Winston Churchill when, you know, surmising Hitler predicted war long before Neville Chamberlain was able to come to grips with reality. Neville Chamberlain was kind of wooed by Hitler's words and said, oh, he, he's a peaceful guy, he, he just wants a little bit of land, but Churchill knew he would not be passed by. It. So Chamberlain wouldn't bring himself to see truth. In this story today, some of David's choices leading up to this incident also indicate that he was setting himself up to fail. So here's the first poor choice that David made, is he did not limit himself to one wife. I mean, at this time, he had four, five, maybe more wives, and not to mention he had other women at his disposal that were called concubines. So this was not a wise choice. Much like his son Solomon would do many years later, David took advantage of his position to surround himself with beautiful women. Now, this was legal as the king. This was cultural, but as experience teaches us, when we don't choose to limit ourselves, eventually life limits us. Right? When you and I don't choose to limit ourselves and our choices and our behavior, eventually life sets limits for us. If we eat freely, this might get close to home, eventually our health will limit what we can eat, right? If we spend freely, eventually no more credit's going to be extended. That card's going to get declined. If we rest freely, then eventually we won't have a residence in which to rest, right? If we don't get out and go out and earn some money. And if anybody deserved a break, it was David. You remember what David's life was like for so many years after he was anointed king? He was a fugitive. He was chased around in the countryside by Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And David had several opportunities to assassinate Saul and become king. He didn't take the chances because he honored God. So David deserved a bit of a break. But now that he's in a position of power, he chooses to indulge himself. And here's a second way in which he chose to leverage his position toward his leisure. Look at 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So David's men are out there on the battlefield. They are, they are you know, enduring hardship To fight for their country, and David stays home. He's relaxing. Now you and I—we're prone to put ourselves in circumstances that aren't wise, right? I mean, this is not wise. David's men are out fighting, and he's just at home relaxing. And you and I do the same thing. And what happens when we put ourselves in unwise situations? Do we make good choices or bad choices? We make worse choices, don't we? We put ourselves in bad situations. And as David is about to learn, all it takes is being at the wrong place at the wrong time for the enemy to get in the back door. So the enemy's about to surprise him. David's not expecting this. David's just kind of taking it easy. He doesn't have any ill intent, but he's put himself in an unwise spot. his, His choices have put him in an unwise spot. He's not chosen to limit himself when it comes to wives. And now he's taking advantage of his position to kind of take it easy. And it's going to make an opportunity for the enemy to slip in the back door. Continuing in verse 2. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now I know you're wondering what I'm wondering. What in the world is a woman doing on the roof taking a bath? Now, I don't know. <laughs> but it's kind of odd. So there she is. And he notices her. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So at this point, David's done what a man would do. He's noticed. He, he has not overlooked her. I mean, she's right there on the roof, taking a bath. But this should have been immediately a warning sign that he needed. This was off limits. Not only was she married, because that's a big deal. I mean, David could have had his pick of women. So not only is she married, but she is Uriah's wife. Did anybody know who Uriah was? David had 30 men, great warriors of renown. They would suffer. They would go to great lengths. They were incredibly loyal to David. There was a story in the Old Testament where David was thirsty in battle. And these men broke through the lines and ran to the spring just to bring him back a drink of water. They risked their lives for him. And Uriah was one of the top three of those guys. So it was David's close friend and compatriot. But David, being habitually polygamous, and at this point unusually idle, his curiosity got the best of him. So he looked into something he had no business looking into. He inquires about her. And this is what happens with bad habits. When we choose bad habits, it leads to temptation. Wrong place, wrong time. Now, if you and I will avoid the wrong places, here's the truth, we're more likely to have a good time we? If we'll avoid those places that mama said not to go to, mama said not to hang out with those people, not to go to those places, if we'll avoid the wrong place, then we're likely to have a good time. But So here David is, wrong place, wrong time. David chose to be vulnerable, and so the temptation took root, and it began to consume him until he couldn't think of anything else but acting on it. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her period, and then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, I mean, he's put her in a really bad spot. You don't refuse the king. She sends a message that says, I'm pregnant. And you know, once you and I have crossed the line in this kind of area when it comes to our purity, we're helpless to control the consequences, right? Oops, I can't take that back. And we know when that's happened, we've gone too far. Point number two is that managing outcomes is futile. And we're about to see David goes to great, extraordinary lengths to try to manage the outcome. He doesn't just confess and repent and try to make things right. He tries to fix it. You know, I watch a lot of cop shows, and uh, there's a guy called a fixer. And that's the guy they bring in when somebody's made a big mess, when a politician's made a big mess, and they bring in the fixer to kind of arrange things to mitigate the consequences. But David's going to play his own fixer. But the truth is, you know, when we really, when we cross the line, round and round the consequences go, and where they stop, nobody knows. It's like you're setting something in motion that you can no longer control. 2 Samuel 11, verses 6 through 9. Then David sent word to Joab, send send me Uriah the Hittite. Call him back from battle. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. So he's making chit-chat. How are things going on the front line? Uriah, have a seat, sir. You're doing a good job, okay? How are things going? Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. You know, you've been in battle. So David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. He sent him, you know, scriptures. he sent him some wine. Wanted him to have a good time. Wanted him to imbibe. Wanted him to indulge himself. You know, up to this point, David hasn't missed an opportunity to indulge himself. Now he's wanting Uriah to do the same thing. And he's, he's hatching a plot. He wants Uriah to spend time with his wife in an intimate way to kind of cover over what he's been up to. But Uriah is a better man than David in this story. He didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the plot has been foiled. And at this point, David has a choice. He could confess his sin, right? To his loyal friend and say, Uriah, my friend, my brother-in-arms, I've sinned against the Lord and I've sinned against you. And I don't know how to make this right. He could have confessed. But instead... David insists on concealing his sin. And Uriah unknowingly signs his death warrant by refusing to comply with David's plot. It's tragic. The next morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. Can you imagine this? I mean, where's David's mind and heart? He basically puts out a contract on Uriah and he he gives it to him to hand deliver to Joab, the military general. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So look at the depths to which David son, to cover over his sin. Not only did he sin against his friend, he had a hit put out on him. And at this point, it's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, what if David had gotten away with this? Think of how, what kind of man David had been up to this point. A man after God's own heart, Scripture calls him. A good leader, a faithful leader, a courageous man, somebody who, whose first priority was the Lord. But if he gets away with this, what do you think is going to happen to him? Who do you think he's going to start to resemble? Think about it for a minute. Tell me. Saul, right? Who was the king before David? Saul. And he got so obsessed with himself and his own power and position, he was willing to do anything to keep it. So David's on a slippery slope. And God is about to intervene. So he thinks he's gotten away with murder, literally. And then David suffers a surprise confrontation that is artfully executed by the prophet Nathan. Prophet Nathan comes in, and he doesn't directly accuse the king, because that could be fatal. He starts telling him a story. He says there was a man. He had one lamb that he loved with all his heart. He treated it like family. And this wealthy landowner, who had plenty of sheep and cattle, comes and swoops down, snatches up this man's one beloved lamb, slaughters it, and then feeds it to his party guests. And at this point, David is here. David is beside himself. Maybe it's a little bit of guilt. And he's so angry. And he says, I don't care who this man is, but he's got to pay. He can't get away with this. And he begins to call for this man's blood. And then Nathan turns the tables on him. And he simply says, David, you are the man. The third point today is that confession is the path to restoration for you and I me. Mean, you know, our poor choices, we don't mean it. We just put ourselves in a bad spot. And then we go too far and we make mistakes and we blow it and we can't really we try, but we can't manage the outcome. And then it's time for confession. Because confession is the path to restoration. After Nathan's words sink in, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And though his confession doesn't take away the consequences for those of us who know the story, there were some severe long-lasting consequences of this sin, but it does prepare David's heart for restoration. And his humility is evident when he pens these words in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12 in the aftermath. David can't manage the outcomes, he can't fix the consequences, but his heart is now repentant. Verse 10, create in me clean heart, oh God. Now think of where David's been up to this point. He's been cunning. He's been crafty. He's been indulgent. But listen to his heart in these verses after he's already confessed and he's suffered the consequences. He says, in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me because my spirit's not been right. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, because you have every right to. You have every right to. Take not thy Holy Spirit Restore unto me, restore me, God, the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Now look at the change that this confrontation has brought in David. And David thought that he was far beyond God's reach. He was the king. Nobody told him what to do. But he learned that God loved him too much to let him get away with it. And now David is humble. He's repentant. He's dependent. So, the bottom line for us today is that God can restore us. He can restore you. He can restore me when we hit rock bottom. You know, you can't run beyond the reach of God. Remember, that's the first lesson for today. God loves us too much. But when you turn back, like David turned back, there is always a way back. And isn't that what we need to hear? From our God, from the Word of God. God, I've blown it. You know, I made some poor choices. I can't manage the outcome. I've got a mess on my hands, and I'm turning back to you, and I'm crying out to you. And God's God's saying, if you turn back to me, if you turn back to me and you humble yourself like David did, I, I'm not going to guarantee you there won't be pain. I'm not going to take away the consequences, but there is a way back to me. There is a way back to a restored relationship with me. There is a way back. And our world does not operate like this, does it? When you blow it, when you you do something bad, the world doesn't forgive you. The system doesn't forgive you. But God is willing and ready and able to receive you back. There's a story I love to read my girls. Sorry, Caleb. It's kind of a daddy-daughter thing. And it's called um, The Way Home. And there's a king And he adopts this little girl named Anna, and he raises her up in his own home. He treats her like family. She has a private tutor, but she begins to wonder about the lands beyond, the lands that she's forbidden to enter, the lands that are under the care of the enemy, the enemy of her father. And so she's lured away. She's enticed, and she can't stand it any longer. She leaves home. She goes away to the enemy territory, and then she belongs no longer to the king. But the king is not willing to accept this. Even though he has every right to ignore her, to reject her, and to refuse to go after her, he straps on his sword and gallantly rides into the forest, defeats the enemy, and is willing to offer his own life as a sacrifice in order to bring her back and to make a way for her to come home. And that same story is true for you, and it's true for me. That God, I mean, by all rights, can give up on us. We don't deserve anything. But through his own son Jesus Christ on the cross, he's made a way for you and I to return home. So if we turn back to God, even in our lowest moments, there is always a way back. Now we've all been in these low moments and we can't take them back. But if we'll turn back to find the way back, then it's time to consider our final thought for today. You know, when you and I have been restored, when we've humbled ourselves... Hopefully now we're a little bit wiser. We can learn from our difficult experiences. So here's the last point for today. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, you and I have been places we never thought we'd be. We've had consequences we never imagined we would have. And now with that in the rearview mirror, let's be wise. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now, the Holy Spirit will lead you and I to be weird, right? You ever thought about that? What's the way that culture is going and the Holy Spirit will lead you and I to be weird? And I say this to my kids, it's okay to be weird if it's wise. It's okay to be weird if it's wise. It's okay to be weird when it comes to finances, you know? It's okay to be weird when it comes to relationships, when it comes to romantic relationships, it's okay to be weird if it's wise. Because the problem is, is a lot of times, like with David, our poor choices is leave the door open. And you know what happens in our house when the door's open? The dogs, get out. the dogs get out, right? And they go romping in the neighborhood and causing lots of trouble for mommy and daddy in the neighborhood. So we say, don't leave the door open, kids. But in this case, I'm more concerned by what might be let in. You know, if we're choosing not to be, we're kind of going with the flow and being unwanted is what might come in. Look at David's life. His relaxed habits led to wandering thoughts and lasting effects. And as David found out, like you and I find out, if we deny ourselves no pleasure, if you and I deny ourselves no pleasure, like nothing's off the table, it's all about me, then eventually our pleasure will be denied, right? If we deny ourselves no pleasure, eventually our pleasure... Will be denied. In other words, you, don't, you no longer enjoy something that costs you more than what you got out of it, right? You ever made a purchase like that? You thought, this is exactly what I need, and then you buy it, and it's kind of junky. Maybe it's made in China, you know? And you paid a lot for it. You didn't get much for it, and you're kind of disappointed. That's the way it works. You no longer enjoy something that costs you more than what you got out of it. So... Moving forward, let's pray for two things as I close. Let's pray for God to lead us toward two things. Number 1, wise habits. Let's pray for God to lead us to wise habits. In other words, we tend to focus on what we want now rather than what we want then. If we'll focus on what we want then, you know, I want I want stable finances, I want satisfying relationships, I want healthy and well children. We'll focus on what we want then rather than what we want now. We're going to make wise habits. And also, let's pray for God to help us to have captive thoughts. And our thoughts can get the best of us, can't they? And they lead us in places we don't really need to go. And this is what we need to say to those thoughts. Hey, you work for me, not the other way around. I don't serve you. You work for me. In fact, you work for the Lord. You know, we can't completely avoid bumps and bruises in life, can we? But God wants to help you and I avoid wounds and scars that are self-inflicted. We can't avoid bumps and bruises, but God loves you and I too much to let us get away with it. He wants to help us avoid wounds and scars that are self-inflicted. And the truth is, is that the less our hearts are occupied with regret, and I know we've all got some of it, I've got some of it, and it's heavy, isn't it? It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. And that regret takes up space in your heart and my heart. And God wants to reserve that space for Him. God wants you and I to be filled to the brim with Him. He doesn't want us to be dragging around all of this guilt and all of this upset. He wants us to be free of it. He wants to protect us from it. God is for you. He is for me. He doesn't want lingering regret to slow us down. So today we're going to sing... Praises to such a God, a God who cares enough about you and me to confront us, to forgive us, to restore us, to instruct us, and to protect us from harm. Pray. God, thank you so much for this message today, and thank you for this story. God, you're so um, you're so good. I mean, you're good enough to confront, and we're grateful for that. We need it, God. We, we don't need to get away with it. We're not going to learn anything. And David certainly didn't need to get away with it. We're thankful for that confrontation, but we're also thankful, Lord, that through Jesus Christ, you have made a way. That when we turn back to you, God, there's always a way back. And so, as now as we sing praises to you, God, to, to praise you for your complexity, you're not just simple. I mean, you're not, you're not the, the outdated grandfather who's unaware of our sin, but you're also not the angry judge. You are the complete You are a loving, caring Father who knows us and who cares enough to instruct and to correct us when we need it. And we're thankful for that. And we praise you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.